Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and boy, oh boy, have we got a full show today. We've got U.S. men's national team roster to discuss ahead of their upcoming World Cup qualifiers. We've also done a heavy amount of research on the USA's three opponents this window, El Salvador, Canada, Honduras. We've got some Americans in action to discuss as well. It's a packed show. Let's get right to it. But first, I've got two fine folks with me today. Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. And Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor. Yeah, no, no fancy introductions this time. We're, we are going to get right to it. Although, Graham, you've made some U.S. national team podcast appearances before. Uh, those were friendlies of sorts. This is your first competitive preview. That's are right. you prepared to be cap-tied to this podcast when it comes to the U.S. <laughs> national team? To sweeten the deal, we will send you a complimentary eagle. Downside is you do have to pay all of your own medical bills. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I've been waiting long enough for a Scotland call up, so I might as well uh, tie my uh, tie my flag to another nation. So there we uh, go. yeah, sure. I'm 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 basically Stuart Holden. <laughs> that could not have sounded less committal, but I like it. I like that there was at least some semblance of a committal. Joe, you're the crafty veteran, the old head. Are you going to take Graham under your wing and show him the ropes of Concacaf qualifying? I think Graham's eagle is going to take him under his own wing at this point. Man, I didn't get an eagle. I'm, I'm just sitting back here thinking, well, I actually don't really want an eagle. I don't think caring for a bird sounds particularly appealing. But also, Taylor, one other thing. I don't think I've ever been called a crafty veteran before. Yep. Maybe this show will just be a show of firsts for both Graham and I. You didn't get your eagle? It's been a, it, I mailed it a long time ago. That's not good. I'm going to blame Amazon. I'm going to blame Amazon it's dead for that. by now. Let's just yeah, he's, it. Not or he's just on the run. So <laughs> he, might, he might have escaped. You never know. Oh, yeah. I, I prefer that, actually. That, I prefer that theory, that he's living a life out in the Arizona desert. <laughs> um, Graham, oh. I, I, actually, I actually do want to ask you to start... Uh, how much experience do you have with CONCACAF World Cup qualifying? Mostly because it is sort of a thing that uh, so many people over here are aware of, the intricacies and the brutality of CONCACAF at times. It makes me wonder if it is more absurd than other, uh, I guess, qualification periods uh, abroad or in other countries. What are your sort of expectations, your awareness of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, Graham? Uh, well, my expectations are some bad refereeing and some All questionable right. uh, playing surfaces, I All guess, right. as, as, as the two cliches, isn't it? No, I, I am fairly um, familiar with CONCAP qualifying. I used to... Many years ago, actually, in the Klinsman era, you know, before it got uh, all a bit sour, I used to cover the USMNT pretty uh, pretty regularly. I had a weird experience with them where I would cover them when they were in Europe. So I went to places like Bosnia and Belgium and oh, wow. I'm trying to think somewhere else, Cyprus. They played a game in Cyprus once. Mm-hmm. So I, I covered them when they were they, when they were out there. But um, yeah, th- those those um, environments were slightly different to your typical CONCACAF qualifying environment so it's it's still a slightly alien sort of environment for me was there one player you remember as giving particularly good quote um Sasha Clishton was always good for a quote I would always try and grab him after after a game I think actually he has um does he maybe have Bosnian roots or something like that and and I got a good quote from him when he played in Bosnia that one time that was a good game I think the US won that one three two Maybe Josie Altador scored a hat trick or something like that. That feels like it was in the time period when he was scoring like every single game for AZ. Fun times when we had a number nine who was scoring regularly. We're going to talk about that. Uh, first, Joe, you were not with us for weekend review yesterday. Uh, so I did want to ask you both if you had a particularly favorite, uh, for whatever reason, or enjoyable moment for whatever reason, uh, moment from an American in action this past weekend. Joe, let's start with you. 
Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's Josh Sargent's brace against Watford yep. to lift Norwich out of the relegation zone for the first time all season long. Guys, they've been in that relegation, in that bottom three spots for the entire season. What a great time for Josh Sargent to get his first Premier League goals. Goals, plural, right? The first one comes as he attacks the six-yard box, and the finish is is wild. Sargent said after the game, I was expecting a bit of a better ball in, and the ball is weird. It's it's higher than ground level. He has to bring his right foot up behind him and almost back heel midair flicks the ball into the back of the net. So it's a bizarre finish, but it totally works. That's the first one. And the second one is a header crashing the box from the weak side. He gets those two goals. Norwich win. They get three points, which is huge for them. And after the game, this is probably my favorite part. After the game, as he's going around and, and clapping and, and saluting the fans, they're chanting USA towards him, right? I mean, what a moment for Josh Sargent to finally get on the board, get a goal, find the ball, and put it in the back of the net for the first time for Norwich in the Premier League. It's huge for him, and he didn't make this World Cup qualifying roster for this January-February window, which is just, I think, which is completely fair from Greg Berhalter. But man, what a, what a moment for him to get involved for Norwich. I think it's huge for him. Am, am I allowed to think that the second goal is actually a better sign for Josh Sargent than the first? Because the, the first goal is, you know, it's it's much more memorable. It's a, a very unique goal, but there's almost a sort of, uh, I don't want to call it a fluke because he means it, but there's almost that kind of fluke element to it. Whereas the second one is the sign of a player who has confidence again. He attacks that ball for the header and that is unique. That's more... Um, you can repeat that over a number of games. So that, that to me, was a better sign of maybe Josh Sargent finding his role at Norwich and just finding his confidence than the, the first goal, no matter you know how, how memorable the first goal was. The header is is big for him, and I like the strength that he shows on that finish. I do, Graham, I guess sort of in opposition to what you're saying here, I do like the movement on Sargent's first goal. He cuts behind a defender. He runs right into that player's weak side and cuts towards the six-yard box, and the movement is really, really good. I agree with you. The finish feels fluky, and I'm not sure Sargent could pull that off five times out of ten if he tried, but I like the setup on that goal, and I like the setup and the finish on the second goal. So things to like from both, but I, I also totally take your point there. My favorite thing about that first goal, I thought they were both good, and Graham, you probably have a good argument for why the second one is probably more important, but for me, the first one, the way he finishes it to me, obviously, it's very like instinctive, he doesn't have time to think about it, it's not a necessarily a deliberate thing, he's just trying to get a foot to it in the best possible way to put it on frame, and he does, and I almost wonder if that's what he needed, is just a moment when he didn't have to think about it and decide, I'm going to put it near post, I'm going to put it far post. He just had to play on instinct, he gets the goal, and hopefully that opens some things up. But Graham, he was not the only uh, American scoring in Europe this weekend. Let's talk Yunus Musa for a moment, shall we? Yeah, so the, the, the best moment involving an American at the weekend is absolutely Josh Sargent, but this, for the sake of variety, I will also mention <laughs> uh, Yunus Musa, who scored the opener for Valencia away to Atletico Madrid. Obviously, Atleti are the defending champions in Spain. The Wanda Metropolitano is traditionally one of the toughest away venues in the Liga as well. So to score in that situation was was pretty impressive. And the way he took the goal was was pretty impressive as, as well. He gets forward well on the counter-attack. He receives the pass. He shifts the ball quickly onto his right foot. He gets a sort of um, snapshot away. I'm not totally sure if it is a, it is a toe poke, but there, there is that element of him taking the shot very quickly and off maybe the, the edge of his toe. Uh, and it catches the Athletic defense, defense by surprise. It certainly catches Jan Oblak by surprise. And it finds the the near post. So I thought it was a well-taken goal for Musa. Obviously, his, um, 
his first La Liga goal of the season. This match ultimately doesn't end well for Valencia as Atleti fought back to win 3-2, but this was certainly a nice moment for Musa and that team. Uh, and we did have uh, Matt Skiandra, Matt Chiandra on Twitter uh, message me and Joe to note that it was 2-1 to one, uh, Valencia when Yunus Musa was then subbed off in the 88th minute, and it finishes 3-2 to Atleti. So uh, w- I think the... The meme that was utilized was the what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. That's the PG version of the Big Lebowski when the car gets smashed uh, with the caption this time being, do you see what happens, Valencia, when you remove a Musa from the game? And yeah, I think we've learned. He'll score the goals, but he will also maybe be the entire glue that holds your team together. And when you take him out, Atleti end up winning. That's going to be my, my, my rule from now on. So I hope Greg Berhalter does not take Yunus Musa out for fear that Diego Simeone comes in and gets some sort of results uh, in World Cup qualifying. Maybe that's a bit ridiculous, but that is how paranoid I am about he World Cup qualifying right now. Actually. Wait, what was that? He feels very CONCACAF, actually, Diego Simeone. See, feel like this is my fear. Well. Graham, you're not helping. You're making this worse. Now okay, I'm actually sorry. concerned that he will come in and find a way to win. Uh, but... Before that happens, we will have uh, some World Cup qualifiers. We've got the U.S. roster. Joe, we haven't yet talked about it, but so we're going to do that now, and we're going to do it in sort of uh, quick-hit fashion, then we'll come back and have a longer conversation. But I'm going to ask you, uh, position group by position group, if there's anything that jumps out. So, Joe, I'm going to come to you first when we talk about the goalkeepers, Zach Steffen, Matt Turner, Sean Johnson, and Gabrielle Slonina. Matt Turner is the name to watch here for me. Mm-hmm. He's getting interest from Arsenal, which I don't believe we've discussed in any level of detail on the show. And I don't know that we necessarily need to do that now, but he is getting recognition from big clubs and I think deservedly so. The real reason, though, that I highlight Matt Turner here is because he could end up starting all three of these games. Zach Steffen reportedly, this comes from Paul Tenorio and Sam Lee from The Athletic, he's day-to-day with back tightness and uh, has not traveled stateside yet, has not made it over to the U.S. across the Atlantic for any of these games so his status is in doubt. Stefan appeared to be Baralter's number one after starting all three of the last World Cup qualifiers. He was back and fit, recovered from COVID and recovered from, I believe, a, a back injury had kept him out a bit in the past as well. But he was back and started in the last window and, and seemed to be the number one. Now his status is in real doubt for any of these games. And I think Matt Turner is going to be the guy. Graham, any anything that jumps out to you about the the goalkeeper group? I know it's not always the, uh, the sexiest positions yeah. uh, to start off with. Yeah, well, the name that, that jumped out to me was uh, Gabriel Slonina, which is he's not a, a player that I am terribly familiar with. Obviously, he plays for um, Chicago and MLS. 17-year-old who Berhalter clearly sees as, as one for the future, so it's not so much his inclusion in the squad that was notable to me, but the fact that there are four goalkeepers here. Now, the information that, Joe, you've just provided, I, act- I actually hadn't seen that, so maybe that's the explanation, that he's been brought in as a third goalkeeper um, in case Stefan isn't available. The other theory that I had was, you know, if Turner has to leave the camp to to make a move to Arsenal, obviously it's the final week of the transfer window. That would be unusual to me because we all know that these moves can can happen um, while players are in, in, in international camps. They don't physically need to be in the, in the country, but maybe if he needed to go um, and have a medical somewhere, a medical centre, maybe that was another theory. And the other theory I had was maybe COVID cover to avoid a yeah. Comoros-type mm. situation <laughs> yeah. where uh, an outfielder is, is is playing any of these matches and goals. Obviously, there's three matches in this round of fixtures, so that's a, that's a different sort of factor to, um, to, to this round. And so you could have some pressure on that goalkeeping group if there is one or maybe even two COVID dropouts, and that's maybe explains why there's four goalkeepers in this roster. 
So pressure on the goalkeeping group. We would assume pressure on the defensive side of things as well. We've got uh, several names. DeAndre Yedlin, Walker Zimmerman, Reggie Cannon, Anthony Robinson, Miles Robinson, Serginho Dest, Mark McKenzie, Chris Richards, and Brooks Lennon. Joe, let's take that last name first, shall we? Mm. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Brooks Lennon is an interesting one here. Less, again, about him, but more about the number of players in his position. Brooks Lennon is one of four right backs on this roster. When you think about him and DeAndre Yedlin and Reggie Cannon and Sergio Dest, four natural right backs and only one natural left back in Anthony Robinson. I don't quite get that. Generally, let me let me say this. Generally, I like this roster. There's a couple names that aren't here that I'm sure we'll talk about. But but by and large, I think this roster is good enough to get some really good results this window. Almost any roster that Barathur could put out would be good enough to get some real results in any of these windows. But I don't quite get the imbalance here between right back and left back. Desk can play there, and he very well might in this window. Barathur also noted in his uh, post-roster release press conference that Yedlin can play there, Cannon can play there, Kellen Acosta can play there. We've seen that already in in qualifying in in the past with the U.S. men's national team. But I don't know what the downside is to bringing Sam Vines or to bringing George Bella or to bringing Joe Scali, who is a guy that I think is is a miss on this roster. He hasn't been excelling really for Mönchengladbach recently getting back from COVID. He's still trying to navigate that situation. So that could be why he's not in this camp. It's also entirely possible that Peralta just doesn't rate Joe Scali right now after he was involved in the last window and not called up for this one. We don't know exactly what the reasoning is there, but the imbalance between right backs and left backs feels like an unnecessary thing on this squad. And I'm not quite sure that I get that. Graham, were you equally befuddled by Brooks Lennon? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand. It's the imbalance, again, that is the, the confusing thing to me. I mean, if George Bello is in this squad over Lennon, um, you know, in terms of the quality of the two players, there's not much really in that. And then you address the imbalance of, again, three fixtures in a single round. Anything can, you know, Anthony Robinson could pick up, pick up an injury or get Omicron. I hope that doesn't happen, but that is entirely possible. We've seen that in, in football. And then all of a sudden you're playing... I know Des can play there, as Joe mentions, but it's not his natural position, and and I think he's been fairly questionable when he's played there before. So, yeah, the imbalance is is peculiar to me when it feels like he Berhalter's created a problem. I can understand right. if you know it's if it's if it's uh, unavoidable, and maybe you know players are injured or so on, and you go, well, you know, we didn't really have anyone else to call up, but he he's created this imbalance with the makeup of the players he's called up. Yeah, and and the only thing I'll add to that is. He can, Brother can bring in another left back in the middle of this camp. You can do whatever you want, basically, with these rosters in between fixtures. But Graham, to your point, you know, it feels a little silly at that point to bring someone else in when you could have just done it from the start. So who knows what's going on there? Maybe it's just to reward him for his performance in the camp that they had for MLS players to kind of make sure that they were all in shape and ready to go. Uh, maybe it's because he's going to get a move and they want to put him in the shop window. You never know. But either way, I was confused by that, especially in relation to Joe Scally not being there. And then with uh, maybe John Brooks also not being involved, I don't really yeah. have an issue with any of the center backs as I see them. Uh, but I think John Brooks not being there is one that we can talk about in a little bit for sure. Uh, other than that, always nice to see Reggie Cannon back. Interesting to see DeAndre Edlin now knowing that his contract with Galatasaray has been Terminated, bought out, canceled, something, one of those three. So he is now a free agent. We'll see where he ends up. But right now he will end up with the U.S. Let's talk about the midfield. Graham, I'm going to come to you for this one. Kellen Acosta, Sebastian Legette, Christian Roldan, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, and Luca De La Torre. Which name jumps out to you? 
Well, I have to go with Luca De La Torre, don't I? My, my good mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his inclusion is, is maybe the, talk, the biggest talking point from the midfield. I was reading that uh, Busio being um, unavailable due to um, testing positive for COVID maybe opens up this, this spot for, for De La Torre. Maybe he's not in this midfield pack with, if Busio's in there. But I will be very interesting, uh, interested given the, the, how we spoke about him last week and how I, there were certain aspects of his game that I wasn't so impressed with when he was playing for Heracles. I'll be very interested to see how he gets on and, and if he gets, um, if he gets game time over the three qualifiers, how Berhalter uses him. Because it's not, my issue with Del Torre is not so much with him as a player. In fact, I, I, I see plenty that I like in terms of his skill set. It's, it's, more how he uses that skill set that I find quite frustrating. And so I want to see how Berhalter uses him, um, whether he uses him in a slightly different way or or whether he uses him in the same way Heracles uses him, which is uh, slightly, as I say, frustrating to my eye. Joe, any name jump out to you or are you also on the dilatory train? I'm also on the De La Torre train for slightly different reasons than Graham, but although I do think we agree on a lot of, of the nice parts of De La Torre's game. This midfield group, though, Taylor and Graham, I think just really picks itself, or at least for Berhalter, it seems like it does at this point. None of these names are a surprise. De La Torre is probably the most surprising of any of them, but as Graham said, with Busio dealing with COVID and unavailable for this camp, he had to drop out after I believe he was initially selected for this roster— you know, a lot of the names just make sense. After the MMA trio, after Adams and McKenney and Musa, De La Torre is the only other player in season right now. Acosta's not in season, Leggett's not in season, uh, and Roldan's not in season either. So it feels to me like this could be a window for De La Torre to get some real minutes as the first central midfielder off the bench to potentially even pick up a start in maybe that, that final game against Honduras. I don't know what those rotations will look like. And Berhalter said, you know, this is a window where the travel time is, is reduced because of where the games are. It's possible that a player, or if we want to infer players, could play in all three games. Maybe De La Torre and, and none of these other options besides MMA will start any of these games. But if somebody's going to start, it feels like the scene could be set, the stage could be set for De La Torre to get some real minutes here as the only one of those guys in season. We will talk about potential starters here in a little bit. First, the forward group. It's a fairly lengthy one. Jossi Zardes, Christian Pulisic, Paul Ariola, Jordan Morris, Timothy Weah, Brendan Aronson, Ricardo Pepe, Jesus Ferreira. Some of those players were in the camp I mentioned previously. Some of them obviously were not. Ricardo Pepe has obviously been getting the headlines since his move to Augsburg. We'll see what happens with Brendan Aronson and his potential move. Timothy Weah is, uh, as far as I know, back and fully fit, ready to go. Joe Lowry, uh, who are you most excited to see in this forward group? It's got to be Wea. Taylor, it has to be Wea. As you mentioned, he was out dealing with an, an injury and now appears to be at least close to full fitness. He missed almost all of December and then the first couple of weeks of January, but has made two appearances for Lille since then. One off the bench, one as a starter, and that was this past weekend. And guys, he looked really, really good in that game. It was a loss for Lille, but man, he was dynamic on that right side. He was creative. He was providing really good balls on the floor into the box for Lille's nines in that 4-4-2 shape. With no Gio Reyna in this camp, and that's a big miss for the U.S., he continues to be out dealing with an injury for Dortmund, working his way back to fitness. So with no Reyna, and with Christian Pulisic not really at his best right now, or at least he hasn't been at his best with the national team recently, this could totally be Weah's window, and I'm, I'm stoked to watch him, guys. Joe, when you say Christian Pulisic's best... I feel like I'm going to ask a lot of questions that could be very leading or could be like subject to hyperbole. So I apologize in advance. But what do you think of 
when you think of like Christian Pulisic at his best? Is it a moment? Is it a time period? Is it just when you feel like he has the most confidence? Like, what is that moment in your mind that says, yep, Pulisic, I want him at that level playing like he did uh, under blank? It was that Panama game, right? In Orlando in the last World Cup qualifying cycle, where Christian Pulisic plays a really big role in that game. Yeah. I also think about this summer in the, the Nations League final. In, in, in that tournament, he had some good moments as well. Christian Pulisic is a streaky player. His skill set lends itself, lends himself to being streaky because he's so reliant on having the ball at his feet and, and doing a lot of the dribbling things that we expect from him. He can also, though, cause problems with his movement and with his runs into the box. So it's less for me, Taylor, of a specific moment or a specific game with Christian Pulisic, but more more for me, I can see his skill set so easily. I can see it so clearly having an impact on pretty much any game for the U.S. men's national team. And we just haven't seen that recently, right? We haven't seen that since, I'm not sure we've seen it at all in this World Cup qualifying cycle, to be honest with you. I think back to that Honduras game in, in the, the first window, right back in September, and the ball was sticking to his feet. You could see the talent there so obviously. And we talked about that, Taylor, you and I after that game. But man, he, he was disrupting a lot of those plays. And I didn't see it at, at first, but you go back and you watch it and he's so clearly stopping the ball. So it's a it's a mixture of his skill set and what I think he can be, what he's shown for Chelsea, what he's shown in the past for the U.S. And I think if he's at that level, this U.S. team is different. But he hasn't been at that level with the U.S. and Wilco qualifying so far. Graham, two questions for you about this group. Uh, first off, uh, who is there anybody you would have liked to see added to this forward group? Because there are some attackers that could have been in there. It does feel like it's mostly the kind of first-choice options Burhalter would have wanted. Gio Reyna, uh, not available due to injury. But anybody else you think could have made a difference or could potentially have made a difference? Yeah, I, I am pretty high on uh, Jordan Peefock, I have to say. I, from what I've seen of him, I, I, I like a lot of what I, I see in him. Um, I think this his, this omission makes slightly more sense than the, the John Brooks one, which we haven't actually spoken about yet but in, in any um, depth. But he he's not playing at the moment, given that the, the Swiss Super League is in... I wasn't quite aware of this, but this, the Swiss Super League has an absolutely gigantic winter break. <laughs> they they last played on the nineteenth of December, and they don't play again until this weekend. So over a month of a of a winter break. So I guess that kind of makes sense, and that he could be quite rusty. But again, you have uh, you have thirteen players in this roster from MLS who haven't played since November, and obviously I know that they have been in a lot of them have been in the camps with uh, with Berhalter, but still. The, the reasoning of maybe leaving him out because he hasn't played much and then picking MLS players, it, it doesn't really, really hold up. I mean, he has got seven goals in his last nine games in all competitions for young boys. He scored four goals in, in that last game that I was talking about on um, the 19th of December. Um, you know, is it is it not worth having him in this roster, especially when there's a bit of debate still about who should be starting in that number nine position? I look maybe at... Someone like, I mean, Jordan Morris has to be one of the biggest beneficiaries of these camps over the last few months. You know, he gets called into the into Camp Candy Cane after what two years away due to due to injury, and now all of a sudden he's he's back in in rosters for World Cup qualifiers. Um, I do wonder if Pfock Pfock looks at that and thinks, hmm, <laughs> maybe that's his thoughts. Hmm, <laughs> I like that being his thoughts. For me, I'm guessing it's that Berhalter wants to see. Who, because there is a fairly lengthy 
like potential number nine list, and maybe he wants to see who can rise to the occasion over these three games or definitively decide the players that cannot. Joe, that's my my answer as to why PFOC isn't here is maybe because Berhalter just wants to see what he can get out of Pepe, out of Ferreira, out of Zardes, maybe out of Morris as a striker, and then maybe we'll know a bit more or at least enough to say, okay, that's not going to be quite enough. Let's see who else can come into the depth chart. There's just so little separating really any of these guys right now. I, I don't know... I don't know exactly what the reason is for leaving Pifak off or for bringing him in the first place. He has a different skill set, and so there is some variance there between him and Pepe or between him and Zardes. But I I almost just can't find enough strength to to have any real cares about this position and who's playing, whether it's Pepe or Zardes. And I do think it'll be one of those two guys starting. It almost doesn't matter to me. Pepe's the more exciting player, and so a lot of me wants to see him but if Zardes plays, that's that's fine. If Ferreira plays, I think that could be quite enjoyable as well. If it had been PFOC, great. If DK had been healthy and he's involved, that's fine. If Sargent's involved even, like it's it's not that big of a deal. It's just hard for me to really push myself and, and, and find some sort of passion to care one way or the other because we haven't seen one of these players really separate themselves from the rest of the group. Pepe did it for a time, but now he's back in the mix after a bit of a goal-scoring drought. I mean, it's just it's tricky for me to say this guy should be in or this guy shouldn't be in outside of maybe looking at the differences, the stylistic differences between those players. But even then, we don't know exactly what Berhalter's game plans are for these three games, and so maybe PFOC just doesn't fit that. I think everything you've just said there, Joe, is, is entirely fair. And I think this is the the most, the, the forward section of this squad is, for me, easily the most interesting part of, of the whole roster. Beca- not Not because it's not you know it's not really nailed down in the same way the midfield is but also because Berhalter has options even in players that he has he's left out of this roster as we mentioned uh, you know Pfott there is not in this not in this roster but could be in could be in the next roster for the next round of qualifiers so it, it this is i've written stuff on this um the the forward line for the guardian and and my eye is instantly drawn to this group when the when the roster was published it's the most interesting part for me All right. We still have much more roster conversation still to come. We've got some previews for the U.S.'s opponents, but first we're going to take a break to hear from some sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. All right, let's talk about the John Brooks-shaped elephant in the room. Graham, <laughs> you mentioned it uh, before we went to break. John Brooks is not involved. He is a slash the veteran center back for the United States, uh, but will not be involved. He is back playing for Wolfsburg. It's not an injury issue. It just seems like maybe there is a clash of personalities. There is something else going on, but it does feel like a fairly prominent omission in an otherwise like mostly straightforward roster. Do either of you have thoughts on this one, either potential explanations or just uh, sharing in my confusion as to why John Brooks is not here? <laughs> I mean, I definitely share your confusion. This is this is a very confusing one for me because obviously in November, Berhalter says it says it's down to form that he's not in 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 that um in that roster, which I can understand that at that point he did have a quite a sticky period before Christmas, before the winter break in the Bundesliga. But having watched John Brooks recently, he's he's been he's been I wouldn't say impressive but he has been decent um for Wolfsburg you know he had a very good game in a 0-0 draw against Hertha Berlin just a couple of weeks ago yes he's on the losing side against RB Leipzig at the weekend there but I watched some of that back and he didn't have a a, a bad game there either so going back to the the whole you've got 13 MLS players in your roster argument it just doesn't make a, a great deal of sense to me to the point where um to kind of provide a, a peek behind the, the TSS curtain I was asking Joan Taylor before we came on on uh, came to record whether there'd been a fallout between Berhalter and Brooks or whether there was some sort of personal situation there that I was missing because it, it is that confusing to me because I, I would have him in my um, strongest starting lineup I think he is probably um, in terms of skill set and experience and the fact he's played at a world cup before he he would be that high in my in my power rankings I don't like, we don't normally jump to complete speculation, and I'm not really going to do that now, but I will say it is the sort of only explanation left in my mind that either something has happened that we don't know about, or it is just a personality clash. Brooks doesn't vibe with what Berhalter wants to do. Berhalter feels like Brooks isn't buying in. I also understand why we're never going to know this, because the coach doesn't want to put out put that out there and burn that bridge and tell and show to his players that he will sort of talk trash about them publicly. The player probably isn't going to verbalize too much because I don't think that really helps them in the long term. And so we'll probably end up getting this situation where we're not quite sure, but he's not involved. Maybe he comes back in if things don't go well. But it does feel like an obvious point uh, that Berhalter can get hit if something goes wrong, Joe. That we, Would it have gone wrong if John Brooks were there? Would we have lost that header? Would we have been able to play out of the back? Would we have had more poise along the defensive line with a veteran presence there? I, I think it's it's a big question that will now have to be answered or hopefully just sort of removed from the conversation by strong performances because otherwise it feels like an area that could become a source of frustration down the road. Yeah, I completely agree with both of you guys here. I don't get this. Peralta said the omission was down to form. Graham talked about that. I don't necessarily buy that. He also said that Brooks wasn't the right fit for these opponents. Okay, then who is Brooks the right fit for? You've got a game against El Salvador and a game against Honduras. Both of those games, you should expect to dominate the ball. 
you know, is there anyone else in the pool you'd rather have breaking lines with the ball? Baralter specifically cited Tim Ream as the best passer in this in this entire player pool, and he's not brought in either. But I think it's either Brooks or Ream for me, and it's probably Brooks between those two guys. So, you know, when is the right time? And, and at that point, really the only option we have, and this is, again, speculation, is that something has gone wrong behind the scenes. And we have no way to know what that is, but there has to be something more to this. It doesn't make sense to me. The, the nice thing about this all for the U.S. is with the talent they have in the back and the talent they have really all over the field, Baralter can afford to have something like this happen, right? He can afford to have some imbalance in left back and right back. He can probably afford to have that. He can probably afford to bring a guy like Mark McKenzie over John Brooks and really not have it bite him all that much. But the probably there is key. We don't know what's going to happen. Maybe something goes wrong and maybe the stage would be set for John Brooks to come in and have a really, really good game. But we'll just never know the answer to that. So I, I don't get this. Again, this feels like it's really hard to say without knowing more of the details, but it sort of feels like another situation where Peralta has made his own life a little bit more challenging than yeah. it needs to be. But again, we just don't have enough information. Joe, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned how Brooks actually plays, because obviously when we're talking about personality clash and we're speculating there, we don't actually know if that's the case. But we can look at how Berhalter's team plays and how Brooks plays. And to my eye it seems like a good fit. I mean, Brooks is, yep. is the maybe the best the U.S. has in helping break down a low block. The the U.S. is likely going to face a low, a low block against El Salvador and, and uh, Honduras, maybe even potentially uh, Canada as well. You know, who knows how that game pans out. And it, it just feels like, you know, his, his forays up the pitch and the way that he sprays the ball out from the back, it seems like a good tactical fit for the US. That's that's partly why I find this this situation so confusing. So I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that was that was my conclusion as well. I'd also my final point on John Brooks would just be that uh in terms of him not fitting against the opposition or not being the right player for this opposition it feels safe to assume that at least one, if not two or three of these teams will be fairly defensive against the United States, which to me then means you have to take advantage of the opportunities you do get, set pieces chief among them. And yes, it was seven years ago, but still, we know John Brooks can score on the biggest level with his head, scores in a World Cup against Ghana. It seems like another player that could maybe have an impact if you're trying to get sort of big bodies in the box to get on the end of some crosses, on the end of some set pieces. So to not have him there, we'll see if it ends up hurting the United States. I also think I'm a little confused, aside from that one, aside from the roster itself, about what the U.S.'s approach to these three games will be. Because I would say the strongest opponent we're going to face is Canada away. It's the second game. Do you play the same team for all three games? Do you say, play the same team for the first two games and treat the first one as not necessarily a warm-up, but as the game where you can sort of figure out some things, get some details wrinkled out, and then you're fully set for that harder game in the second game? Do you balance it? Do you rotate it? I'm not mm. quite sure I have an opinion as to what would be best. I lean towards maybe start your strongest team in the first and second games and then see where you are after those. Yeah. Joe, any strong opinions one way or the other? Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. And I say this as someone who doesn't know all the fitness levels of these players. And there's a lot that goes into that stuff, like a lot that goes into managing workload and working with clubs and communicating more, more goes into that stuff than I think a lot of people realize. But if everything is okay, or at least if most things are okay with the players' fitness levels and the miles and their legs and, and their health and all of those things, I'm going strongest 11 for the El Salvador game on Thursday, and I'm going strongest 11 that I have available for that game against Canada on Sunday. And then after that, if you've gotten good results, maybe you can play a little bit with that lineup against Honduras at home. 
maybe you don't want to do that. I mean, that one you can almost take a little bit more by ear, but these first two, I'm getting my my MMA midfield out. I'm getting Tim Weah and Christian Pulisic out. Again, I'm giving away a lot of my lineup here, but I'm getting my my starters out and really the players that I think can go out and get the result. I'm putting them out on the field against El Salvador and I'm doing the exact same thing against Canada. Yeah, it- it's it's better, in my mind, it's better to assess a situation after it's happened rather than try and predict what situations could come down the road. And I'm, in general, I'm always in favour of just get just get the points on the board as as early as you can and then figure it out from there. So yeah, strongest strongest team for the first and second game, certainly. Let's try to build that strongest team really quickly and then see how it might evolve because... My assumption would be it's going to be a 4-3-3. That's what we've seen from the United States, especially with that MMA midfield. I'll go ahead and pencil that one in. Uh, Musa McKinney and Adams starting in midfield. I'm assuming we're all okay with Matt Turner starting in goal. Graham, any thoughts on who you'd like to see along the back line for the United States, presuming it's a back four? Yeah, so I've gone for um, Dest at right back, Robinson at left back, no surprises there. Um, my centre back pairing, I've gone for Robinson, and I've gone I've gone for Chris Richards over Zimmerman just because he's he's played more recently. Um, obviously, with the the Bundesliga being in season and MLS being in its off season, and actually recently when we when we've watched Hoffenheim, I've I've been pretty impressed with uh, Chris Richards. So that would be my centre back pairing personally. I've got the exact same backline, Graham. I have I had similar questions about is it Richards or is it Zimmerman? And the fitness thing was a big one for me. I, I guess then the question is you could expand it a little broader to say which two of Richard Zimmerman and Robinson do you want? And I, I kept Robinson over Zimmerman and I put Richards in over Zimmerman as well. The fitness is a big part of that. And and for me, the other part is ball playing ability. We talked about it with Brooks. It's likely that Honduras, certainly in, in El Salvador, if this is the game that we're thinking more about right now. It's likely that the U.S. will have more of the ball in those two games, maybe even against Canada, as we've mentioned, but I'm not so sure about that. If I'm trying to break down a block, Richards is the guy I want to do it over a player like Zimmerman or even over a player like Miles Robinson, certainly over a player like Mark McKenzie. So between fitness and his skill on the ball, that's why I have uh, have Richards in that back line. Uh, credit to you both for guaranteeing that Walker Zimmerman is going to start that first game. <laughs> um, I'm assuming we're all okay with that midfield three. What about up top, Joe? What's your front three looking like? I've got Wea on the right. I hope he's ready to go. I hope he can play at least 60 or, or 75, maybe a full 90. He's going to be key for the U.S. in this window, I really do believe. I even made that VSP last week that he would lead the U.S. in goals and World Cup qualifying should he be healthy over these next five games. So he's a big one for me. Christian Pulisic on the left, I think you've got to start him. He's fit. He's back with Chelsea. This is a big chance for him. And then I've got Pepe as the nine. But as I said earlier, I'm not really bothered between Pepe or Zardes. <laughs> yeah, Graham and I are on the same page. Pepe, Zardes, Ferreira, honestly, I, I don't really care between any of those three but i'll i'll get on the peppy hype train i'll wear my big hat um it's peppy time baby um i had the same front three graham did as well so it doesn't seem like we have a ton of uh (laughs) dissension in the ranks which is probably not the worst that's a good uh, sign right though isn't it it for the for the u.s because it feels like you know and being in a world cup year you probably don't want that many positions that are too fluid so the fact that the the three of us have pretty much come up with the same team when asked what's the strongest side, that's that's a good thing for the US, if, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is definitely the case, Graham, because looking at where I still have sort of question marks, 
I feel like there were a couple positions that I had question marks about previously. I don't anymore. And Tim Weah is one of those because we assume that if Gio Reyna were fully fit and and fully ready to go and playing good football, he would be in this team. Since he is not, it seems like Timothy Weah has uh, justified his inclusion both in the squad and as a potential starter. Uh, and we've talked about it previously, but the work he's put in with Berhalter, with their communication, with sort of asking what he can do better, with requesting film to watch of areas for improvement. It seems like he has justified his spot. And so I end up feeling sort of concerned about who's going to be the other center back or center back depth or who's the replacement for Tyler Adams. But th- you're right. There, like the lack of complete uncertainty about a lot of different spots is fairly comforting. Would love for Ricardo Pepe to start this one with a, a brace or even just a goal, but, uh, but something to get- let us feel like, all right, you know, there's goals coming in. That number nine spot is a little bit more secure. That is probably my my main area of concern or uncertainty at this point. Just going back to um, Timothy Weir and asking a hypothetical question here. I think if that if that right-sided spot is down to Weir and Reina in 2022, obviously we're hoping Reina gets fit quickly again and starts getting game time for Dortmund again. But is there a scenario where Weir is actually a better tactical fit for that front line if, if Christian Pulisic is on the left always kind of cutting inside and, and trying to get a shot away is it is it better for the balance of the team for Weah to be on that right side and kind of stretch the pitch a little bit and I watched him a lot in, in Scotland when he was over here he was Celtic always used him for his for his pace and I know maybe he's added a bit more attacking output recently but I do wonder whether Weah makes more sense from a tactical point of view even if Reina is technically a, a more talented player can you see my point of view there um uh, yeah I'll, I'll answer joe i would love to hear your thoughts on this one i, I absolutely can graham can graham whew, that was hard to say quickly uh but i would add the disclaimer that i genuinely do have like a goldfish brain sometimes and this is one of those it's been so long since we've seen Gio Reyna, aside from headlines that he's going to be returning next week and he is going to be returning after this international break uh, or so we're told uh, he has been about to return for a good couple months now but I think it's been so long that I sort of have trouble remembering what like his absolute strengths were that he brought into the team and I can remember bits and pieces but I think because there is that recency bias I look at Tim Weah who has sort of grown into that role and has to some extent made it his own especially against Mexico it does feel like right now it is his spot and then there would be a pretty feisty competition if Gio Reyna were to come back in but in terms of adding that sort of speed down the channel, but his decision-making has improved. I think his spacing has improved, and he is just a sort of an attacking threat that defenses have to deal with, and anytime you're making the defense adjust to what you're trying to do, even if it doesn't benefit you individually, it certainly opens up gaps for your teammates. So I think there's definitely a pretty strong argument there, Graham. Uh, Joe, agree or disagree? I I agree. I I actually think there's a chance that Tim Weah forces Berhalter's hand into choosing between not him and Gio Reyna on the right side, but between choosing Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic on the left side. I I think Weah has that much ability. Christian Pulisic, as I've said before, has been spotty recently with the national team. And maybe that changes, right? Maybe that changes between now and November. I don't know the answer to that. But I could see Weah starting on one side and and either Reyna or Pulisic starting on the other side. Or maybe it is Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna. I don't know exactly what the what the the preferred duo is there, but Graham, to your initial point, Weya brings some really valuable qualities on that right side, and Christian Pulisic brings some of those same qualities. He is he he is a bit more direct than I think a lot of people give him credit for. He's willing to do some of that off ball running and some of that vertical movement in behind the back line. 
But Weah, I think, does it better than anyone else in this pool right now, maybe outside of Brendan Aronson, but Weah brings more on the ball than Aronson does anyway. So, But these are the kinds of problems, right? These are the kinds of problems that you want to be having as a national team. I don't know what the right pairing is, and I don't know that Barathe really knows that either. But man, to have this discussion at all and to have those questions, that's only a good thing and also makes me happy that I don't have to actually decide that. So overall, final question on the roster, like just broadly speaking, with some of the absences we've talked about, with some of the inclusions we've talked about, how do you all feel like this is a a, a, a strong enough roster? This is the sort of roster you would have liked to see, broadly speaking. John Brooks probably should have been in there. You can make the argument for Joe Scali. I think plenty of people would have made the argument for Luca De La Torre, but here he is. So Joe, overall, is this like a B-plus roster for you, a B? Where are you at with it? I think it's an... Yeah, B, B, B plus roster is good, right? Without the imbalance in some of the positions and the whole Brooks thing, it probably would be a little bit higher. But either way, regardless of the letter grade, this roster is good enough to get a lot of points out of these three games. And that's the thing that matters most. The U.S. has the talent to come in and get results. Now the question is, are they actually going to get those results? And and Graham, I ask for your grade as well. Knowing this is your your debut competitive cap, choose wisely. <laughs> I'm going to go for a B, not quite right. as, as as high as, as Joe, just because I, I mark Berhalter down for kind of creating the imbalance in, in the defence with the the very heavy uh, right-sided, lop-sided balance going on there. I, 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 I mark him down for that. But other than that, and Brooks not being in the in the roster, it's it's pretty much what you would expect. It's it's a strong it's a strong squad. Um, not many injuries as well at the moment, which I think is a as a factor. You know, Reina's obviously one, but other than that, it's uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a strong a strong group. All right, uh, we have talked about the roster. Final segment coming up. We're going to look at the USA's three opponents, but first, one more break. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. I'm guessing you have not left. We've got three World Cup qualifiers to talk about. Here is your schedule uh, up first on Thursday evening. El Salvador uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern, I think. It could be 7, it could be 8. You never know with the, uh, the broadcast schedules. That one's on ESPN2. We've got three different television providers for you. Then Sunday, we are away to Canada at Tim Hortons Field. Uh going to be cold. I'm assuming 3 p.m. on Paramount Plus. Final game Wednesday, February 2nd against Honduras, 7.30 p.m. on Fox Sports 1, FS1. So we've got those dates. We've got those times. Let's look at the teams. We've all watched some footage. We've all looked at their previous results. And I think what we're going to do is try to just kind of figure out what we expect each team to do, roughly speaking, and look at some key players, some key absences, that sort of thing. Let's start with El Salvador. Last time we played them, we were away. They played in a 5-4-1. It was a nil-nil draw. People were concerned. It was pretty dull. Joe, I'm going to assume, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you would like the U.S. to score more goals this time than they did last time. Yeah, that's a safe a bold assumption, statement. Taylor. A bold really, really, really okay. bold. Right. And it, it should be possible with this El Salvador <laughs> yeah. team, right? I They've had so. some good moments under Hugo Perez throughout his time there. But they're seventh in the Ocho, right? In Honduras later, I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but they're eighth in the Ocho. There's winnable games here, especially at home. So with El Salvador, they've only got six points through eight games, one win and three draws. They drew against the U.S. in that opening game that you just referenced, Taylor. They drew against Honduras at home and Jamaica at home, and they ended up beating Panama at home. That's where all of their points have come from, those four games. You mentioned the the back five, Taylor. They've used some of that at times in World Cup qualifying. More recently, Hugo Perez has, has really liked this 4-4-2 diamond shape as well as a 4-4-2 that's a bit flattened in midfield. So with that flat 4-4-2 or that 4-4-2 diamond, they will play with the ball some in terms of the tactics. They will use the ball. They'll try to play out the back at times. They'll also play some chipped balls into midfield into that that tight grouping of four or the, the front two from goal. So they'll, they'll play out in that way as well. They like to use right back Brian Tamakas on the overlap in that space on the right wing. And, and if you give them time and space, yes, this is a team that generally lacks talent, especially relative to the U.S. and Mexico and Canada. But if you give them time and space, they can cause problems. So I'm curious to see how the U.S. approaches shutting El Salvador down. I assume there's going to be a lot of high pressing involved from the United States, really trying to smother El Salvador and not give them any chance to pick their heads up and attack. But that's generally how I think this team will look with the ball. I'm expecting some sort of back four, although that could be, you know, could be different in this particular game. But some attempt to play with the ball, but I'm guessing the U.S. is going to try to limit that as much as they can. I'm 
Joe, I'm glad you, you you picked up on the on the fullbacks overlapping there because that was one of the features that I picked out as well from the the qualifiers that I, I watched back in particular how they how they use the the wings that seems to be where they are at the at their strongest and I think the US needs to be wary not to to leave too much space in behind the fullbacks obviously it's a game where the US would expect to have more of the ball and so if it's um, you know Robinson and Dest in those fullback positions they're you know naturally attack minded so they could get pulled up quite far up the pitch and then obviously you're leaving yourself exposed to the counter-attack um, and as I say El Salvador do seem to be they focus a lot of their play on the wings so that's something to to keep an eye on for the US but in terms of their weaknesses as a team um, they seem to be quite poor when they're up against a high press uh, and they'll, they'll they do cough up the ball quite a bit as as well. So given the way the US play, that is something that um, I think Berhalter will be asking his his players to do is to apply as much pressure as possible because a few opportunities could come from that. There are lots of different ways you can defensively deal with overlapping fullbacks, knowing that they're going to try to play on the counter, knowing that they might try to be aggressive. I would prefer that the United States try to push numbers as high up as they can. Maybe that's risky, but it does feel like a game in which if you keep committing your numbers higher up, you can force them back and sort of limit that willingness to try to commit to the counterattack, to, tr- to try to commit numbers forward if you're El Salvador, because you do run that risk of being quickly counterpressed and and then you have kind of left yourself pretty vulnerable. So I think I would rather see the United States take a more aggressive approach in response to what you all are talking about. Joe, is that is that too risky to start th- this round of qualifying? I think I'm just up for like, let's go out and get this win and look really comprehensively yeah. good uh, and not sit off and be a little bit cautious for those first 30 minutes. No, I think that's exactly what you want to do, Taylor. I mean, El Salvador has created the, the least amount of expected goals of any team in the Ocho. That's according to Paul Carr. They don't create a lot of chances. And yes, it can be dangerous in moments. And we've talked about that. But you want to go. You want to go for it, especially if it is that MMA midfield that we've been talking about, especially if it is Tim Weah and Christian Pulisic. Heck, even if it's Paul Ariola and Brendan Aronson. Those are players who want to go. They want to press. They want to step high. They want to win the ball and play quickly. That's what this U.S. team is built to do. If there's anything other than that, if the U.S. chooses almost any other defensive approach, and it's almost inaccurate to call it just a defensive approach because it lends itself so quickly and really flows into attack as soon as you win the ball, if the U.S. tries to play any other way in this game, I'll be really surprised. I'll be shocked if that happens because it seems like Every factor is pointing directly towards the U.S. being aggressive, depressing El Salvador. As Graham mentioned, they're not especially good when they're under pressure. Only when they have time and space, I feel like, can they really pick you apart. And even then, we haven't seen a lot of that in World Cup qualifying so far. So yeah, go for it. Let Musa and McKenney press. Let Adams cover ground and, and sweep the ball up in counter-pressing situations. Let Chris Richards or whoever is in the back play some line-breaking passes. Get Dest involved. All of those things, I think, will, will lend themselves to a strong U.S. performance should they approach the game in that way. That, so should they do that? That's the, uh, like, if they do that, the conditional is there. I think what, what I'm really excited about with having Graham on this episode is that Joe and I spend so much time talking about the U.S. national team and CONCACAF opposition that I do wonder if sometimes, like, I don't like I'm awkward even just saying this, but that like we're we're too generous to CONCACAF opposition. There's too much of a they could always spring a surprise. They could always get a result. We never want to be arrogant. We always want to make sure we at least are staying humble in the way we talk about these teams. Graham, is that not necessarily silly, but like, are we being too cautious for you, a person who doesn't have as much vested in this U.S. national team and these results? 
this is is this in your mind a game that the United States should be winning and winning comprehensively? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was I was I was struggling to think of how I was going to answer the first part of your question because it's difficult to draw the line between um, you know, being confident and being arrogant, I guess. And obviously these 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 CONCACAF nations do deserve respect and as we've seen from the the first game between the US and El, and El Salvador they they can cause problems um for the US or at least can hold the US at, at arm's length but should the US be winning this game comfortably absolutely El Salvador are the lowest scorers in in the Ocho so far with they've scored four goals in in eight games so from an attacking point of view there's not much to be too concerned about as i say in possession they look like a like a relatively poor team um maybe they play differently against the US you know that can happen in international football maybe they are going to be press resistant in this game but there's there's no evidence that I've seen so far from what I've, I've seen of El Salvador to suggest that they are that sort of side so yeah absolutely US should be winning this game pretty comfortably I would say all right so we would we would assume El Salvador uh whether they go back four back five Seems more likely to be a back four. I agree with you, Joe, on that one. But we would assume attacking fullbacks, they will try to counter. But the U.S., if they're aggressive, should be able to get through this one. At least that is our hope. Do you see how noncommittal I am when it comes to actually saying the United (laughs) States is going to win? Because I am that nervous. I'm even more nervous about the next opponent. Let's talk Canada, Joseph Lowry. We will not have Alfonso Davies. Canada will not have Alfonso Davies. I am kind of sad about that because I think he does make this clash more interesting, more compelling, and he he just gives so much variety to what Canada wants to do. He can play so many positions. Looking at the shape over their last like five or six games, I've seen Davies as part of a front two. I've seen him as part of a more like attacking two in a three four two one. I've seen him up top. I've seen him out wide in a three four two three one. He does so many things for Canada, which is important. But then he also because he can fill in in different roles, he allows them to utilize other personnel in different spots not having him essentially in my mind sort of firms up what Canada are likely to do because they don't have that or as much versatility am I overstating Joe like the kind of value Alfonso Davies has or how much not necessarily how much weaker do you think they are but how big of a loss is this for them it's a huge loss for Canada right Davies is the best player in this entire region he's one of the best players in the world he can play so many different spots as you mentioned Taylor and that helps add this element of tactical flexibility to Canada that John Herdman's really relied on in this World Cup qualifying cycle so far, even dating back to the the earlier rounds of World Cup qualifying. Let's not forget that Canada has had to go through those rounds and progress to this stage, unlike a lot of the other teams in the Ocho. All that said, man, maybe I'm too high on Canada, but I think they can overcome this absence of Davies. Not easily, but man, I feel like the talent is there and the ability is there from this group to be able to cover for him. Are they going to be the same team without Davies? No, of of course not, right? But you've got Tejan Buchanan, who can do a lot of the similar things, a lot of those same actions and and, and stylistic things Buchanan does, and Davies does those things too. So there's there's a tie-in there. Jonathan David and Kyle Lahren are still in this squad, two of the best nines in this entire region as well, better than any individual number nine the U.S. has right now by a wide margin, I would argue. They've got talent in midfield. They've got talent in the back. This is a good team. They're top of the Ocho right now for a reason with 16 points through eight games. They're, they're, they have been the best team and woke up qualifying so far. Losing Davies is big, but I, I'm not confident that I know what Canada is going to throw out the United States in this game on January 30th. They're that versatile. They have that much talent. 
even without Davies, this is going to be a really hard game for the US. And and they have done it before. They have coped without Davis when he's been out, um, you know, injured. You look at Canada's performances at the, at the Gold Cup last summer when he was he was uh, sidelines, made the semi-finals, even in World Cup qualifying in this cycle. You know, they have picked up results without Davis. I know it's I know it's um, a different level of opposition, but I decided to go back and watch Canada's three 0 win over El Salvador last October. Um, and the reason I picked that game to watch in depth was that they were without Davis for Davis for that match, and I, and I was. I was very impressed with how the intensity was was still there. You know, they swarmed El Salvador, how they moved the ball quickly when they had it, how they also stood up to the physical side of the game as well. So I'm not trying to argue that Canada won't be a poorer side without Davis. I think if he plays this game, he's probably the best player on the pitch um, between the two sides. He's he's a world-class um, player so naturally they're going to be worse off without him but I this isn't a one-man team like maybe it has been in the past for Canada where if they lose one player maybe maybe that's it you know they have got quality throughout this roster and they have a manager and a coaching setup that knows how to how to use it in different ways as Joe says there they are an adaptable side you know the intensity always tends to be there but they use it in different ways and in different shapes they've played with a back three they've played with a back four you know so it's um it's difficult to know what to expect from Canada without Davis, but I think it will be a difficult game for the U.S. Graham, talking about the quality that uh, Canada have on that roster, if we remove Alfonso Davies, if we don't talk about Jonathan David, if we don't talk about Tejan Buchanan, take those three away. Who are the players that then sort of rise in your estimations? Who are the players that you're most excited to see aside from those three names? Well, I think Jonathan Asario is is a, an important figure for for this Canada team going through the the qualifiers qualifiers that they have played obviously he's someone that MLS fans will know well and I think his adaptability in midfield he provides a link between the the midfield and attack is is very important maybe he will be even more important given that Davies is not going to provide that outlet on in the I mean I was going to say in the wide areas there um, he plays a number of different positions for Canada but generally speaking he he's in a wide area as an outlet so not having him there is Canada are maybe going to have to progress it through the midfield a little bit more and and Osario is is uh, going to be important so he's he's one of the players that that stands out to me and then looking at kind of stalwarts of this of this squad um, Stephen Vittoria isn't—he's not a player that I am terribly familiar with. Obviously, he had a spell in MLS with uh, the Philadelphia Union, but he's had—he's had a a pretty strange career in a number of different places. But he played 14 games for Canada last year, and I think he's a, a pretty important member of their defensive unit. And whether they are playing in a in a back three or a back four, he has—he does tend to to keep his position. Um, and so his experience—he's—he's—he's he's, he's well into his thirties, so his experience could be. Key as well, I think Canada. I think it's fair to say that Canada will have to do a, a you know, their their fair share of defending. I think the US will have chances. They will have a lot of the ball, and so players like him and and his organizational skills, I think, will be pretty important as well. And that last that last point, Graham, about you know how Canada will approach this game, for me, that's the most interesting storyline, maybe of this entire window for the US, is how. How on earth is Canada going to approach and how on earth is the U.S. going to approach as well? And how are those things going to mix, right? We talked about the different shapes and, and how many different places Davies plays and how that changes Canada and, and how the different lineups that they use affect things. But it's not just about the flexibility in their formation or in terms of where players are lined up. 
It's also about the flexibility in terms of their tactical style. They'll dominate possession against lesser teams. And, and you talked about the El Salvador game, Graham, and I don't know if they ended up dominating possession in that one. I believe that's the one where they jump on the board early, right? They get out early and they, they get a couple of goals and they don't need to control as much of the ball. But man, against Honduras, I believe early on in this cycle, they did that and they, they will control possession in those moments. They'll have some really clever rotations in possession with Alistair Johnson moving from right back to right center back with Kamal Miller driving forward as that left center back in a back three in possession. Richie Larea and, and Tejan Buchanan rotating and doing some really interesting things in wide areas. They can do that stuff or they can sit back and attack on the break, which is exactly what they did against the U.S. in Nashville in that 1-1 draw. They really frustrated the U.S. in that game with John Brooks, I might add. So will they take a similar approach in this game? At home, I'm not so sure, but they could, and they can do it really effectively. Or the third thing they can do, and the third thing they've done in World Cup qualifying, is they can step up higher and press and try to make your life miserable. They did that Me- They did that to Mexico not once, but twice. They did it at the Azteca and really punished Mexico's fullbacks with Tejon and Davies driving into those spaces on the wings in a bit more of a 4-4-2 and then they they pressed Mexico and won that game at home in Canada, really relying on that high press and trying to force Mexico to turn the ball over during their build-up play. They can do so many different things, and I honestly don't know if I'm John Herdman exactly how I'm approaching this game. The, the one thing, though, that I'm confident in is that Canada are going to look to be vertical early and often. And that can come in possession, that can come in transition, that can come off of high presses, that can come off of sitting a little bit deeper and attacking on the break. They're going to be vertical, even without Davies, who is their best player in transition. He's their best player in pretty much every attacking phase. They have Tejon. They have quality in those nine spots. Jonathan Osorio can link play, as you said, Graham. Stephen, uh, Stefan Estacchio, if he's ready and able to go after a, a reported positive COVID test, he can be uh, the guy providing the balls out from the middle of midfield. He's so technical after... Uh, you know, we've seen him do that after a number of different games for Canada. He's really good on the ball. There's so much potential for this team, and I don't know how they're going to approach this game on the 30th, but I'm pretty darn confident that it's going to be an entertaining one. One other thing that we should probably note is that this one is being played in Hamilton, Ontario. So one way they will definitely approach oh, yeah. it is to tr- try to freeze the U.S. men's national team. Uh, I just checked uh, at this. time of recording uh, on Tuesday afternoon. The feels like temperature in Hamilton is negative 14. The yes. feels like temperature <laughs> expected for this evening is between negative 19 and negative 25. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that tells you sort of what the U.S. is getting into. It feels like they're going to make it as unpleasant as possible, uh, and then try to get that result. So we shall see what happens with Canada. Final team we should mention before we call it a day is Honduras, the third team the U.S. will be playing. Uh, I will jump in to say, again, we have a lot of different looks. It has already been stated, but they are eighth, so most of those looks have not necessarily paid off so it's tough to say this is what they will definitively do because what they've been definitively doing is losing my assumption is that we'll see something close to a 4-3-3 slash 4-5-1 slash 5-4-1 but I think there will be a lot of speed out on the channels they will look to counterattack, and in a lot of ways I think they're fairly similar to El Salvador in my mind uh Joe where are you on Honduras I think we'll see more of a 4-4-2. That, that's what okay. I've seen mostly from Honduras. But Taylor, to your point about that back five, they did use a situational back five against the U.S. in September. And that game was awful for the United States, despite the 4-0 <laughs> win for the U.S. Yeah. Honduras frustrated the heck out of the United States in that first half. So they could line up in a number of different shapes. You're absolutely right about that. But again, maybe more important than the particular formation, whether it's a 4-4-2 or whatever it looks like. 
they're going to try to press a little bit, but they're most comfortable in a mid-block, especially on the road. I don't see them being all that adventurous. One of the central midfielders will step forward, try to mark the opposition's number six at times, or at least shadow that player and try to deny the ball into who we think, well, it might not be Tyler Adams by game three. It could be Acosta. It could be someone else. But they're going to try to deny access into those spaces, and then they're going to drop and try to absorb pressure in whatever defensive shape they're in. That's their their MO really all the time. It's changed a little bit as they've gone through a coaching change with Hernan Dario Gomez taking over for Fabian Coito, but largely the ideas are, are similar. The attack is quick. It's in transition. It's aggressive. It's Romel Kyoto. It's Albert Elise. When those players are in the lineup, and they're both in the squad, we don't know if they'll be starting in this third game of the window. But when those players are in, especially, Honduras is well-equipped to attack and transition. That's where they're dangerous. They're not all that organized in possession. They don't have a ton of structure. They don't have real ball players in the back. But, man, they do have quality in those two players, Kyoto and Elise. They're dangerous, and they can give the U.S. some challenges. Um, I think that's really the, the phase of play. The U.S. in defensive transition and Honduras in attacking transition that I think will have the biggest impact on this game, at least from Honduras's perspective. Yeah, I think the U.S. needs to be wary of Elise in, in, in particular. And, and I watched the game, um, so they were Honduras were two 0 up against Panama. Yep. Um, with fifteen minutes to play left to play, they somehow contrived to lose that game three two. Um, the reason for that was their defending was absolutely atrocious. Um, the individual errors in the three goals that they conceded were 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 quite astonishing. So. Maybe that's a, a weakness of this side, but in terms of a strength, the 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 way that they were able to get uh, Albert Elith in behind, and the way that he took his chance as well to put to put, I think he scores the first goal um, to make it one nil and then, and there's a, a similar chance where they get in behind and make it two nil. So that is um, something that the the US will be will need to be wary of, and obviously Elise is is maybe the standout superstar name in in this roster. Another name um, that might be familiar to American fans is uh, Brian Acosta, and uh, Maynard Figueroa, who obviously was with uh, with uh, who was he with the Dynamo. Dynamo recently? Is that, uh, yeah, he was with Houston Dynamo recently, and uh, I actually found out in doing my research that he made his debut for the Honduras national team in the same year that Ricardo Pepe was born. So that is quite something. <laughs> Oh, man. He, he's older than me. It's always nice to find an active outfield player who is older than I am. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mano Figueroa, for that. I do appreciate it. Joe, you blew my mind a little bit earlier because I think I get so obsessed with what the United States will do and how they might try to play. I sort of forget. Honduras also has three games in this, and you're absolutely right. It stands to reason that they may not, after playing, I think it's Canada, El Salvador, and the United States, or after playing Canada and El Salvador... Might not have everybody fully fit, might not yeah. be able to play that first choice team or might send some people home, depending on how results go. So, yeah, I will say if it's a Honduras team that does include, say, Elise in Kyoto and Brian Maya, uh, I am somewhat nervous about that counterattacking threat. I, I still expect the United States to be able to get the result. But if they don't have a couple of those names... I am significantly less concerned about Honduras. Absolutely. And one other name one other name that they absolutely will not have in this camp is Andy Nahar, who is yeah. apparently beefing with their new manager. I mentioned uh, Hernan Dario Gomez earlier. They made that coaching change after the after the October window, excuse me, Honduras did. 
And evidently, Nahara wanted someone else to take that job, and uh, Dario Gomez didn't appreciate that all that much. And so uh, Nahara wasn't brought in in November, is not involved in this window either. So that's one player, one, one player that, that Honduras will not have for this window. That's a break for the U.S. And, and for the other opponents that Honduras is up against in January and February. He's not going to be involved. If Elise and Kyoto aren't involved, there's almost no excuse for the U.S. to be losing this game at home. There's almost no excuse either way. These are wins that the U.S. needs. This is a pivotal window for them. Only one more after this in March. The U.S. doesn't really want to leave it till March. It might not be 100% guaranteed that they qualify with six, seven, or nine points, but you know that would go a long way towards making March a little bit easier for everybody. Okay, so Joe Lowry guarantees nine points, writing that down. (laughs) Uh, And Joe, final thing for me on this one, really appreciate you bringing up Andy Nahar and his absence, because I would add uh, uh, Kevin uh, Alvarez started their last two World Cup qualifiers, I believe, has 14 caps total. He is also not included. He is Mm. also a right back. So when I started crossing off names as to who could start at right back, the one that was remaining was Diego Rodriguez. He started their recent friendly against Colombia, which is a two-to-one loss, but he has also played left back for them on occasion so it does feel like there is going to be some uncertainty at fullback I think that could be an area the United States tries to exploit since they obviously have talent out wide that can uh, create some chances create some goals but that is an area of opportunity I think for the U.S. obviously we are going to be uh, talking about these games at length we're going to be watching and reviewing every single one you can find those episodes coming out later this week and next week obviously but for now gentlemen I think we've talked the roster I think we've talked opposition plenty of talking done today. Graham Rothman, congratulations on your first competitive cap when it comes to U.S. <laughs> soccer podcasting. Yeah, enjoy your eagle, Graham. Yeah, and my, and my eagle. Yeah. I'm, I'm stroking it here on my desk. <laughs> and your medical bills. And your medical bills. Don't forget those. <laughs> Joe Lowry, <laughs> yeah, uh, thank, you, thank you, you crafty veteran, you. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. I'm not stroking my eagle, but that's it's fine. It's okay, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I am I am not stroking my eagle either. I have nothing else witty to say, so I will just say thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon.